Hello and welcome to the VIP pod. I'm Emma, one of your hosts. In this series, we meet a range of people who are visually impaired. We're hoping to raise awareness of people who've got many different sight conditions, all whilst having a great conversation and having a bit of a laugh too. Hi there, this is Rupert from the VIP pod team. Just to let you know, as with all our interviews in this series, it was recorded online remotely, so the sound quality may vary. Today we're talking to the lovely Tiggy Trethawan, who was absolutely lovely. She worked in TV, didn't she, before she started losing her sight? Yeah, worked on the Antiques Roadshow. And worked with lovely Bear Grylls. I mean, it sounded absolutely (laughs) petrifying. (laughs) I guess working in those kind of industries meant that she, you know, it's a fast-paced environment and then she had to kind of take a stand back from it. Um, And it was a really interesting story, actually. Yes, fantastic conversation. Shall we have a listen? I live in a little village called Draper, which is about a mile and a half from Cheddar Gorge. Oh, wow. That sounds gorgeous. It's very beautiful. I live uh, above a farmhouse looking straight out across the Somerset levels. And behind me are the Mendip Hills. So I've got a guide dog and a pet dog. So we walk every day up on the hill. And sometimes if we're not feeling quite so stoic, we'll just walk out on the flat of the Somerset levels. It's gorgeous. Oh, wow. And and you kind of wander around doing your podcast. Is that correct? Is that what you do? I don't wander now okay. because I'm in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody, I don't think there's a lot of wandering generally at the moment. Also, I have an underlying health condition, so I'm at home quite a bit. I have been running a podcast series now for uh, over 18 months called Drake Art Diaries, which is all about people's life stories in the village. That's the vicar, the publican, the saddler, the local shepherd. It just covers some of the fantastic live stories but when covid kicked off i started a sub-series which is called draycott diaries documentaries which are 10 minute shorts each one of those will be of a person in the village who is affected by covid is doing something for covid making a difference for example we've got a very active sewing group here making scrubs somebody is a nurse at western supermare hospital and also a volunteer in a voluntary shop a vet and also a resident who is recently widowed who isn't able to to even go to her husband's grave at the moment. So mm. there's some poignant stories, quite funny stories. Our local food bank seems to be getting a lot of KY jelly and condoms at the moment. <laughs> Nobody quite understands why. Either people are restraining from sex, therefore they're giving it to the food bank. I don't know. So there are some, and also we've got cats in crisis because their owners are at home all the time at the moment. I tend to do a light spin on the documentaries. So tell me about your guide dog. She's fast asleep here by my feet. <laughs> She's called Jackie. She's four years old. We've been together, she was 15 months when we started our training. And uh, she's just wonderful. A full black Labrador completely changed my life for all the reasons I know that guide dog owners do mention. But it's really hard, Emma, to tell you exactly why they change your life. They don't just lead you around obstacles. They allow you to get your confidence back. And since I've had her, I've become much more proactive in my own broadcasting I do a lot of writing now. I have to go to London quite a bit. Even though she's a country dog, she's very comfortable on an escalator, on a crowded tube in London. She's my wonder girl. Wow. Is she an assistance dog? Is that different to 
another form of guide dog. I don't really know much about guide dogs. There are many types of assistance dogs now in process, and you're quite right to make differentiation. She is specifically a guide dog for the blind and visually impaired, of which I am one. Therefore, she has been taught to do a million things, but really taking me from A to B, getting me across roads, getting me around things. And also the most important thing is it's a clear identification to to people that we come across that I have visual needs because I don't project it from the front. People would just think I was being clumsy or drunk. So having a guide dog just allows me also an identification to people around me that I have some challenges. If you think of it as just really a compass, it's a form of navigation. Obviously, you must love dogs to love a guide dog and I adore her. But I simply see her as my car, you know, my yeah. my car on four legs, really. And then at home, she's the pet that I love very much indeed. And with, do you talk about her in your podcast? Jackie is completely part of the podcast. <laughs> if you're a guide dog owner, you will know that really you cease to have any identity. You are purely somebody at the end of the lead. When I do my podcast and we're not in lockdown, then I'll be going around with my microphone, Claire Baldwin style. And obviously Jackie's got to get me to these places. It's when you're doing interviews, often your contributor, the person you're talking to, can be a little bit anxious. So having the dog with you just allows people to um, relax a little bit and have a bit of fun and she's quite naughty we recently went to a vegetable stall to talk to a strawberry farmer mm-hmm. she ate the best part of a whole sack of potatoes another place we went to to this lady's a wonderful hat maker milliner spent a disproportionate amount of time in her head in the materials box and of course they you know the blind are not always aware of what their guide dog is doing and the guide dog is very aware that the blind person doesn't know what they're doing. It's a win-win situation for a, for a guide dog. She's specifically a guide dog for the blind. What sort of adjustments did you have to do? Well, the adjustment was I had to give up work. I, I had quite a successful career. Successful in the sense that I was making a living out of it. Not not that I was famous, but mm. a good, I had a good career in television. For, for 10 years, I had to pretend I wasn't going blind because I worked on a contract basis, which was really tough and very strenuous. I suppose it's like coming out, isn't it? So in November <laughs> 2017, I had to step away. It was just getting too tough. I decided really to step away. So that's when I turned to broadcasting on, a, on obviously just from a voice point of view and and then from there came the writing because people are endlessly interested in what I used to do as a career. We're quite similar in our ways of I was in a TV producer beforehand. It's such a stressful job isn't it? Tell me about what you worked on. I mean I've been in telly since pretty well since I could walk. I mean a lot of my family (laughs) members were in in telly. My sister was uh, in natural history for a long time so I used to watch her going off filming. I mean, the beginning of my career was very much drama-based, situation, comedy. I was a first assistant director by trade. I worked on a programme called 999, which I'm sure people won't remember, but it was a long time ago. We started using reconstruction. We had to do a lot of stunt work, not doing them, obviously, but Mm -hmm. how one would legally get the correct people to do the stunts and for example using a lot of aircraft so you had to be very tuned into certification of expertise so to speak and because I'd done that there was a new series just starting down the road a survival series with a guy called Bear Grylls and he was pretty well unknown then but they needed somebody with my kind of skill base they had mainly the people doing that job were blokes from the army uh, because it was kind of quite a quite a manly thing. There was a lot of military kind of stuff going on. Yeah. So when I first joined, I was kind of a little bit kind of aware that I was kind of a woman. I was also very aware that 
I came from a drama background. I think some military people sort of frown on that as see us as lovers. But once I got out there to Belize and all the remote jungles of the world, you know, I think um, bit by bit I got respect and um, Bear was great and he gave me a knife. So I can't have done that badly. Because if Bear, if Bear Grylls gives you a knife, you know that you've done well. I, I not know what to do with it. I use it for vegetables these days, but it's very good. So was there a moment that you realised that your eyesight was too hard to, to deny it, basically? I think that has to be a personal decision. Uh, everybody loses their sight. I think we all have to make that decision when we need to make a change. It was just too challenging because castle steps, dark corridors, big houses, cellars. And you've got to remember that I'm responsible for 6,000 people's health and safety. And even though I felt quite comfortable because I drew up risk assessments as big as a Bible, had there been any evacuations needed, I was completely on top of that. It was more the fact that I was having trouble literally getting around. And on the roadshow, I had to move really, really quickly. It was just a consistent crisis management exercise. I was also aware people were there with precious artefacts, you know, from family. And I didn't want to be the one to break Granny's Ming vase, you know. Um <laughs> And also I was began to feel rather stupid. People were beginning to treat me differently because some people knew. It was uncomfortable and, and understandably, as any big organisation does, they ask you to, if you've made disclosure that you have a, a challenge, as I did, uh, then they have the perfect right to ask you to do tests and medical assessments. Mm. And I just didn't feel comfortable with that. So eventually, for my own pride, I decided it was time to step away. And I did that in November 2000. 2017. That's such a stressful job, isn't it, TV? It is one of those jobs that literally you... I don't know how I did it for... Well, I did it for quite a long time, but I think I've not been able to go back to work in the same way as before. And, I, you know, I loved that job. But going back into that, I just feel like I'd, I wouldn't be able to perform to such a high standard, which is why I haven't even tried to get back into it. Maybe at some point, hey? Never say never for me. <laughs> I think the secret, Emma, is that whatever challenges anybody has and there's something you want to do, then you make it work, but you make it work on your terms rather than the other way around. And that's what takes the stress out of it, because I'm still doing some jobs that I was doing in telly. I'm still, you know, but I'm doing them differently. So I absolutely say to anybody, there is not anything anybody can't do if that makes good grammatical sense it's just about how you reset your navigation towards that point but getting the stress out of it is taking control and making it work for you i had never met a blind person before so and i had no point of reference and i didn't know basically what on earth to do once you move into the non-sighted world you then realize what help is out there but you know when you're on your own as as you and I were and it happens you know and you don't know where that help is that's that's the darkest moment and all I can say is that now that I'm aware I would say between the RNIB and guide dogs I would literally say they have saved my life. So I just wanted to say ah, that. 
Yeah, no, that's that's amazing though. That you know, I can see, but I obviously I've got different visual issues going on. So it's very interesting to hear. So you do lots of talks, did you say? Now is that what you do? You do tell me about your talks. Because I did this weird parallel of at uh, one point in my life, I was doing bear grills throughout the winter, and and then in the summer I'd be doffing my pearls, and then doing the antiques roadshow. So people love that kind of parallel. So I was for a while. I I still do them. Uh, I do them less because they're quite punishing because I have to do it with the PowerPoint and any of us for sight loss know it's quite wearing. Um, I get quite nervous. So I tend to, I do do them, but I only do them now for, if I'm doing that one, the money's got to be right <laughs> um, for me to want to do it. But what I do do, obviously, as a volunteer, completely free and do much more of is I do talks for guide dogs because the truth is telly's telly. But actually, my life with Jackie and what I'm doing now probably is more important and I'm more happy than I've ever been. So that's a talk that I do enjoy doing. And obviously, I do that completely free and I do it for guide dogs. And if people are happy to give us a donation, then then delighted that goes to the charity. And, and you don't miss your TV career then? I thought I would. And jumping off the cliff, I'm making that decision was the hardest I've ever made and my answer is today I've never been happier because everything I do now is in my control I don't feel stressed anymore I sleep eight hours every night and my life is very full but it's full of of the things I want to do it's all on my terms now Mm -hmm. and um so no I don't miss (laughs) television but you know if something came up regarding I don't know something to do you know people are talking about doing documentaries and things about what I'm what I'm achieving as a blind woman and Mm. you know if that came up yeah I'd be up for that but I I I mean I wouldn't want to go out and do drama or or god bless the ship the antiques roadshow um those days are certainly not happening anymore thank goodness and your podcast is going well? Yeah, I've had nearly 3,000 listens now, so that's good. And I can look in the back room and see uh, who's listening. Not, you know, that it's Nellie Smith at number three, the range, but <laughs> I can see where in the world it's been listened to. And um, very popular with Americans, very popular in Taiwan. I don't uh-huh. know why. Uh, <laughs> it, it's getting more popular in Australia. And I think I said at the beginning, we have two listeners that are unknown. And I'm pretty sure they're listening up in the space station. I'm the voice of it. Behind me, I have two editors who are retired in the village. Obviously, I have Jackie Dog, who gets me from A to B. A lovely friend of mine does all the graphics and the website. My brother arranges the music. And what is fabulous is there is this gentleman who I absolutely would never name, who dropped, it was a very, very, very high up in social work, just had a drop out in society and is now living on a tiny island in Scotland uh, with him and his dog. And he is the podcast king. I can't remember how I found out about him, but he was the one that was able to show me how we put the material out on podcast. He's a bit of a saint, really, but he always has asked me that I never, ever name him or say where he is because he's doesn't want to, he's dropped out of society and he's very happy to do that. 
Do you think it's built up your confidence by having a guide dog? I'd like to throw in a negative, and it's only a small one, and it probably affects, I don't know whether it would be a gender thing or not, but because I have severe visual impairment, and I was saying at the beginning, I don't project it from the front, I do get quite a lot of people which come up and wave their hands in front of my face, see the guide dog, and wave their hand in front of my face and go, Mm. you don't look blind, dear. I actually had a guy grab me the other day by the lapel, pull me right forward so I could feel his breath on my face and say, you see, dear, you don't look blind. And I think I, I, most of the attention is brilliant, sometimes a bit irritating because you might be in a bad mood and don't want to talk to people, but you have Mm. to accept if you've got the glory of a guide dog, that's going to come by. But there can be some negative because sometimes because we have got so good or we did get so good at coping with little eyesight that, you know, people almost look at me and sort of go, well, why has she got a guide dog? You know, because people still associate having a guide dog with having total non-sight. And I now have lots and lots and lots of friends in the non-sighted world, some who have some sight and some who have none at all. And I think there is still an old-fashioned opinion that guide dogs only go to people that have no sight at all, no light perception, nothing. I think it's quite a new thing to people to accept that people with severe visual impairment um, sometimes have guide dogs as well. Everyone is different in different ways, aren't we? So, But people, again, don't understand that. You know, they think that you can see, Emma. My, my brain is all confused most of the time. <laughs> so it's like, so, and it gets stressed. So that's um, that's why how I'm partially sighted from it all. You said, you know, people don't understand. But why would they? You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the nicer people I find in life are those who have had challenges because they have empathy to to others. But... There are the lucky few who go through life and are untouched by grief or any kind of life challenge. And they're the ones that stare and ask stupid questions. But then again, you know, if people haven't experienced it and are not educated in in the ways of disability and accessibility, it's not really their, it's not that they're not their fault. I mean, it'd be nice that people took responsibility for educating themselves, but it's just life. You know, if they haven't experienced it, they don't know anything about it, then they're going to be stupid about it, frankly. Uh, did you say you worked for the guide dogs? Very much so. I'm an ambassador, so and I'm coordinator for this uh, area that I live in now mm. uh, for volunteers. And so I run events. Um, unfortunately, I've had to put a line under them. But recently, I was going to be doing blind skittles, and I'm doing something with Ardman. A friend of mine is does the um, his head animator in Ardman, and he, he well, hopefully that's some go ahead. But he's going to come along with some of the models from Chicken Run, and we're going to play the film and. He'll do a Q&A on that. Various fates and duvets. I've raised quite a lot of money, actually. I mean, as part of a team, yeah. I never do this on my own. I am part of a team. So, yeah, I, um, and I do a lot of talks for them. So, yeah, I'm very active with Guide Dogs, and I love them. And can I just say that the RNIB have been amazing and have really supported me, particularly in technology, um, because mm. moving forward, I mean, too boring to go into, but... MRI scan recently means my, my site will go completely. So I'm now preparing for that. No, it's fine. I'm fine as long as I know it's happening. And the RNIB are now uh, very active with me, uh, working out my technology for the future and using all the fantastic technology that's available. And what I find just so rewarding is the people that's teaching me have less sight than I do. You know, so that gives me positivity because they are so much more familiar with 
working way around a key, keyboard and, and everything. So I get a call at least once a week from the technical team and that I'm finding absolutely invaluable. And then when I was in debt, trying to get myself out of that, there and I, we were there. And also when I was trying to get some help with some sort of um, subsidy from the government, the RNIB were there. So I think between the two organisations, I have felt very supported. And I think it's important to say it's been a dual role. I think when I, because of my conditions a bit more different, I still can't, because I've got huge amounts of dyslexia from the, from the virus, I've then had to, my memory is so terrible and I, like, I can't figure out the Dragon software and all those things. So I, at some point, I'm sure it will all fit into place. But at the moment, it's, it's only six and a half years. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, yeah, so I'm still trying to struggle with the, uh, the technology. But I mean, that's something that I won't ever give up because it is getting better and easier. I read more now than I ever, ever read in my life. <laughs> And that has educated my brain threefold because I'm better at spelling and just generally stuff like that. So um, I use audiobooks and also um, because I'm, I've really recently found it, of course, we've all got it. I use narrator. Um, and so, you know, that reads the document smooth. But I'm, I'm training on um, Dragon. But audiobooks, I, I drink audiobooks. <laughs> The Time Traveller's Wife uh, is an amazing book, and I cannot remember the author. And I would say, favourite book of all time, A Gentleman in Moscow. Um, I had a quick question, one quick question, uh, um, of Bear Grylls, when you were out in the in the jungles was there was there anything you learned from him that you thought you'll always remember that for the rest of your days survival skills probably a little bit you know you know what tell is like and probably a little bit i mean well i walk every day up in the hills with my dog so probably a little bit if i think i'm getting into trouble you know i could probably build a shelter if i really want to i don't know <laughs> don't know i could really be bothered but yeah probably I've, I've eaten ants and things and they were kind of okay i suppose i could live on that but actually the one thing i learned from working primarily and I, sorry this is a gender thing but you can imagine it's quite it attracts quite a lot of a military type people and yeah. quite, you know and uh both men and women but predominantly in that series it tended to be men uh that trying to get a lot of men into four four by fours to go filming every day it's the hardest job i think i've ever done and <laughs> they all talk about their knives incessantly this is a big kind of survival thing about comparing knives there was an endless who's conversation who's got the biggest one <laughs> you, not necessarily <laughs> the biggest one ever but you would think that was the case no it's often no it would apparently the size didn't matter in this case but um <laughs> But, you know, it, was, it just used to amuse me that actually men always go on about, you know, women. But I just remember in the morning trying to get people into the lounge over stuff. And, and I tell you the other thing, the most surprising thing, because everybody goes, oh, that's going to be so hard. You know, well, of course it was. It was. It was very hard. But the roadshow by a mile was the most challenging program to work on I've ever worked on on the basis that I was responsible for over 6,000 people's health and safety was an unticketed show, you know, you just didn't know who was there. That's the most challenging job I've wow. ever done and possibly ever will. Well, thank you so much, Tiggy. Thanks so much for coming to the VIP pod. Well, can I say a very big thank you to you, Emma? You've been absolutely fantastic. Um, oh, you know, we've all got challenges and um, I think you've been an absolutely brilliant interviewer and it's been a complete joy talking to you and Michael. Thank you very, very, very much for inviting me to do this. 
you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Feel free to get in touch with the team by emailing thevippod at gmail.com.